Hi, I'm Blake Gilman, the Vice President, Director of Post-Acute Care Services at LCS. You're listening to the Healthcare Highwire, the LCS Health Services Division premier podcast that inspires to provide meaningful and pertinent content that gives you an edge in balancing business and healthcare. Thank you for listening to this episode. We hope you enjoy it. Today's host is the VP Director of Post-Acute Regulatory Strategy at Life Care Services. She leads the development of strategies to ensure regulatory compliance as it pertains to the post-acute environment for LCS. She has advanced benchmarks for our skilled nursing facilities for risk mitigation, and she is the LCS HIPAA Privacy Officer. Your host today is Laura Franco. Our guest today is a registered nurse who is a mock surveyor and MDS specialist for LCS Life Plan Communities. She provides oversight for the resident assessment process and is our specialist in COVID-19 assessing and skilling. Welcome to Natalie Moore. Hi everyone, welcome. I'm Laura Franco and as you've heard, I'm joined by my colleague today, Natalie Moore. Welcome, Natalie. Thank you for having me, Laura. Today, Natalie, we decided to really talk about how to skill an individual under Medicare Part A under COVID-19. Because I know we've had a ton of questions, Natalie, especially you, right? Yes, <laughs> right. yes, so, tons of questions. So let's start at the beginning with you know the basics. The big question, can you actually skill someone under Medicare Part A um, using COVID-19? Okay, so the answer to that is yes, absolutely. So as everybody knows that we have this waiver in place, but just keep in mind that the waiver does have two parts. That first part is they're waiving the three-day hospitalization. And then the second part is they decrease the 60-day wellness break. So the majority of everyone is going to go ahead and qualify for that first part because we're trying to keep the hospitals beds free for the acutely ill COVID-19 and other patients that need the hospital. So we're trying to keep patients in-house, right? So they automatically fall into that first category for the waiver. I think a lot of questions come in from the second category, which is that decrease in the 60-day wellness break. So really the only thing you need to ask yourself to figure that out is, has my resident had any spell of illness break? Meaning whether they exhausted their 100 days or they didn't utilize all 100 days, after their Medicare ended, did they have a spell of illness break? So for instance, if someone requires over 26% of their calories and over 501 cc's of water through their G-tube every day, that means they've remained skilled and they have not had any spell of illness break. So keeping in mind whatever you're skilling them for or something else that would be considered a skillable service, If they continue to have that without any break, then that means they do not fall into that second category of the waiver. So that's the first thing. So then once you've established that, then you know that your resident is able to be covered under Part A. Also bear in mind that not everybody has Medicare Part A. Natalie, can I jump in here and ask you a quick question on the waiver um, before we go too far? On the waiver itself, at least for the three-day stay, I'm getting questions because the regulation specifically says it has to be related to COVID-19. So Mm -hmm. how do you actually invoke that three-day stay 
for that waiver. For instance, if you're in a health center that has had no positive cases or very few in your community at large, if your hospital still has beds, how do we invoke that waiver at that point? I would say because the directive is to keep those hospital rooms available in case at any point in time, um, COVID can hit the community and they'll need those beds available for those people in the community. Okay, great, great, thank you. Now that we've really you know, justified saying, okay, we know that the person had the spell of illness, they qualify for the stay, what happens next? Okay. <laughs> So the first thing you need to do is start with their diagnosis. The correct ICD-10 code for COVID-19 is U07.1. And then you're gonna follow all of the things that you would normally do when you're skilling somebody. It becomes a little complicated when we don't do it the traditional way, right? We kind of forget the steps. But you absolutely have to get the physician's order to admit to skilled service. You've got to set your assessment reference date. You have to start your Medicare certs. You have to start GG observations. So everything that you would do normally when you're skilling somebody under Medicare. So quick question on that um, ICD-10 code. That goes on the MDS as the principal diagnosis. Is that correct? That's correct. Great, thank you. Now, Natalie, we've identified that we can indeed skill the resident under Medicare Part A for COVID-19 using that diagnosis code U07.1, I believe what is what you said. So now that we've established that, what type of questions are you getting? Um, because I know you're getting a lot of questions right now, but what type of questions are you getting in terms of that process and that diagnosis and just general questions? Okay, absolutely. The majority of my questions are coming from just concerns about how can we skill someone for COVID. And so the answer to that is that we're skilling under the management and evaluation of the resident care plan, which would include development, management, evaluation based on the physician order, supportive documentation, whatever constitutes the skilling nurses services in terms of the resident's physical, mental condition, these services require the involvement of skilled nursing personnel to meet the resident's medical needs, promote recovery, and ensure medical safety. So we're making changes to their care plan anytime. First, everyone was at risk for COVID, and then now you would adjust their care plan again to say they actually have the diagnosis. So then if they're asymptomatic, your care plan would be focused on assessing and observations for changes and then for your symptomatic resident, you're going to update your care plan to say they now have COVID-19. These are their symptoms. This is what we're doing as far as the intervention. Your goal is probably going to change to something along the lines of um, they will recover without any significant interactions related to the COVID-19. And then your interventions will be the treatments that you have in place, your isolation, all the things that you're doing in terms of treating for those symptoms. The second category you can utilize to skill under Medicare would be observation and assessment of the resident's condition. So this would include services when the likelihood of change in the resident condition required skilled nursing or skilled 
rehab personnel to identify and evaluate the resident's need for possible modification of treatment and additional medical procedures until the condition is essentially stabilized. So both of these categories have absolutely everything to do with what you're doing for your COVID-19 resident. But also keep in mind that the CDC is saying, even if your resident is asymptomatic, older adults and persons with medical comorbidities may have delayed presentation of fever and respiratory symptoms. So in this population, we have both of those, right? We have older adults and we have persons with medical comorbidities. So clinicians should be aware of the potential for some residents to rapidly deteriorate one week after the illness onset. Or once we get those positive results, even if they're asymptomatic, it is critical that we continue to assess them and observe for symptoms as in the elderly, they don't automatically present all the time. I have also received several questions about, can we duly certify for hospice? The answer to that is yes, as long as the services are unrelated to the resident's terminal condition. So let's say they're on hospice for end-stage renal disease and they contract COVID-19. Those conditions are unrelated. So you would be scaling them for the COVID-19, but their hospice service would continue for their end-stage renal disease. And if your business office manager is unsure how to bill that, they would continue to bill Part B for hospice, and then they would utilize the Part A, and on the UB40, they would put in the condition code 07. And while we're on the subject of the UB40, when your business office manager is billing for COVID using the waiver, their condition code would be D as in dog, R for disaster. So Natalie, I had a question also come up. You know, after 14 days, they're seeing that a lot of folks in their community at large, not in their community, but their community at large, their peers, are automatically keeping people on and skilling them past day um, 14, day 15, just as an automatic. Can you talk to that for a minute? Yes, absolutely. I think the easiest way for people to understand is if you work with your clinical team. So every county has different criteria in place as to how long do we keep a COVID-19 person in isolation. So as far as skilling them specifically for COVID, I would follow the guidelines of your county. So some counties are saying, uh, like you said, we're doing 14 days and then they're coming out. Some counties are requiring you to get two negative tests. Some counties are requiring 10 days with those last three days being asymptomatic, they come out. So just focus on whatever your county says, and then you would base specifically COVID on that. Now, once your county is saying that they're free to come out of isolation, your clinical team is gonna to get together and say, if they have like a CHF or a COPD exacerbation because of the COVID, let's continue to skill them and watch that as that has came up during the time that they were skilled. So we're allowed to skill them for another condition that comes up during that time period, right? And in addition to that, we want therapy to look at the resident as well to see did they have any deterioration in their ADL function. So once you've gotten 
passed the COVID-19 county direction on when to take them out of isolation. You've looked at them clinically and decided there's nothing else going on with them. Therapy has said they're at their baseline. Then you'd go ahead and issue the NOMNOC. Okay, that's really good information for us to have. I keep getting another question, um, and so I want to revisit this again. The criteria for strict isolation for COVID-19 in order to capture it on the MDS. Okay. Even though there are several waivers in place, isolation is not one of them. So you'll continue to look at your RAI as far as single room isolation. So those have not changed. There are four criteria. We'll go over there really quickly. And so it says the resident has an active infection with highly transmissible significant pathogens that have been acquired by physical contact or airborne or droplet transmission. So anyone with the diagnosis of COVID, that's a check for that one. The second one is precautions are over and above standard precautions. This is transmission-based precautions, contact droplet and or airborne must be in effect. We're doing that as well, so we can check that off. The third one is resident is in a room alone. That's key because of the active infection and cannot have a roommate. So even though some places are cohorting the COVIDs, you cannot capture this on the MDS. They still require the single room isolation. And then the last one is that we have to have documentation. And this is key for the future when we go back and get audited, you have to have documentation that says the resident has remained in his or her room and that they require all services brought to the resident in their room, for example, rehab activities, dining services, etc. And actually the clinical team and I are coming up with a daily skilled documentation like cheat sheet that maybe we haven't decided if we're going to copy and paste how that's all going to plan out but it will be something that you can use for your daily skill documentation for your covid residents be them asymptomatic or symptomatic and in there uh, we will have the blurb that you'll need for the requirement for the single room isolation that's fantastic that's going to be really really helpful so, yeah, so um, be on the lookout for that wonderful wonderful so natalie what other advice do you have for our listeners? I would say the last thing that I want to talk about is just, I get a lot of questions about what should be in our skilled documentation. So first of all, we'll talk about your symptomatic resident. So if you have a symptomatic resident, you're going to document on what are their current symptoms? What treatment do you have in place? Do an evaluation of those treatments, any need for changes, is your resident on an IV of some sort? Do they now have oxygen? What were their reactions to any of the treatments? Tolerance of the IV medications or any antibiotics that they might be on? Are they having signs and symptoms of dehydration? Any lab tests and those results? ADL function and changes? What we're doing as far as isolation precautions, the PPE? And then in addition to that, we're going to do a full-on respiratory and GI assessment, and then possibly a neuro if a headache or loss of smell and taste or confusion is in part of their symptoms. So then the big question remains, what do I document on if my resident has absolutely no symptoms? I hear a lot of people say they're at their baseline, nothing's going on with them. What am I supposed to document? 
So for these residents, you're going to do the full respiratory assessment, a full GI assessment, and a partial neuro assessment. So the neuro assessment, we're looking for, are they having a headache? Are they having changes in cognition? Are they having signs and symptoms of anxiety, depression, stuff like that? Then you're also going to include your isolation precautions, the PPE, focusing on ADL functional status, what's their energy level, and then again, any labs or diagnostics tests and their results. So there's a lot of stuff that you can document on even in the asymptomatic, because you have to prove that they're asymptomatic, right? You can't just say nothing's going on with them. You have to prove that you've assessed all of these areas and that they are truly asymptomatic. Wow, that's a, that's a lot, Natalie. It's a lot, definitely, definitely. It absolutely so, is, yes. So this has been very, very educational for me, and I'm sure it has been for our listeners. So I want to thank you so much for joining me, Natalie, and hopefully we'll continue to have you back with more information, whether it's related to COVID-19 or not. How's that? <laughs> that would be great. Yes, absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. All right. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Legal Disclaimer. Life Care Services LLC is not engaged in rendering legal advice. Therefore, any information provided in this podcast, although intended to be correct, is also not intended to replace or supersede the advice of your legal counsel. Also, thank you to Ben Sounds for the music provided in this podcast.